18th century French philosopher. Why don't I just turn this off and shout? Yeah. Philip Schaff, on the other hand, a, a really well-known Christian historian, wrote, Calvin must be reckoned as one of the greatest and best men whom God raised up in the history of Christianity. Lord Morley wrote, To omit Calvin from the forces of Western civil evolution is to read history with one eye shut. George Harkness wrote, of all the figures that gave greatness to the 16th century, none left a more lasting heritage than John Calvin. And theologian William Cunningham wrote, Calvin is the man who, next to St. Paul, has done the most good to mankind. John Knox, one of Calvin's followers, who we'll talk about next week, said, quote, Geneva, where Calvin lived is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. So what's the truth about John Calvin? Is he a megalomaniac, a self-centered dictator who ruled people ruthlessly, or was he this guy that next to Paul was the greatest Christian that ever lived? Let's look at some life facts about Calvin. Like Luther, let's get a picture of Calvin up there first. This is Calvin in his 30s. Now you can... In the old days, you didn't smile when you had your portrait done. That didn't start till about 1920. Did you know that? It became popular to smile when your picture was taken. So none of these paintings of these old guys, have they're not smiling. They have this very austere, somber look on their face. But actually, he was a pretty cheerful guy. Like Luther, Calvin was trained as a lawyer. And surprisingly, he was never ordained. He had no formal theological training. He didn't start or belong to a denomination. He lived only until his mid-50s. He didn't even start a seminary. He actually started a Bible school, but not a, what we would call a seminary today. Nevertheless, his theological system has been foundational to the American Baptists. Up until recently, they changed the last 100 years. But they started out as Calvinists. Episcopalians are Calvinists. Dutch Reformed are Calvinists, Congregationalists are Calvinists, Presbyterians are Calvinists. Did you know that? In short, Calvin's theology has been basic to almost all Protestants, except Lutherans, who picked up 90% of Calvin's theology, and Methodists, and those that the Methodists have influenced. So John Calvin's had a gigantic footprint in the Protestant church. Unlike Luther, Calvin was reluctant to talk about himself, so we don't know that much about his personal life. We know almost nothing about how or when he was converted. 
And although he was a Frenchman, he spent most of his life in Swiss Geneva, a place where he did not want to live amongst the people he did not want to live amongst. So he was a servant. He went there because God directed him. He didn't want to live there. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. In many ways, he was the heir of Zwingli, Zwingli's Zurich theology, and that's why we have him today following up with Zwingli last week. He and his disciples planted roughly a thousand churches in France. A thousand churches in France. We've planted two churches here in 20 years. In 10 years, roughly 15 year period of time, Calvin planted a thousand churches in France. Main big time missionary influence. People don't think of Calvin and Calvinism as missionaries, in fact. Most people that are hostile to Calvinism today will say, well, the reason I'm not a Calvinist is I'm interested in missions. And if you believe that people are predestined for salvation, why should you mess with missions? But the truth is, all the greatest missionaries in history have been Calvinists. All of them, right down the line, up until just recently, last oh, three or four decades, maybe. Calvin was very intelligent. He preached upwards of 18 to 20 sermons per month. Now, your pastor preaches four or five a month, and that's a lot of work. Calvin preached four or five a week, plus just a horrendous workload of other stuff to do on top of that. He wrote commentaries on the Bible and constantly rewrote and expanded his main work, which was the Institutes of the Christian Religion. In addition, he maintained extensive correspondence, letter writing with hundreds of pastors and political leaders. Now, we have a lot of those letters still today, and you know, all written by quill and ink, very slow, laborious method of writing, no word processors. Calvin is best known for his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Here's a picture of one of the first editions. Of course, it's in Latin, so you won't be able to read it, but up towards the top in the middle, it says I-O-N, Calvino, author. You can see in Latin there, John Calvin, author. A better translation would be of the Institutes would be Principles of the Christian Religion. The Institutes was the most important summary of Protestant thought put out during the Reformation period. Calvin was not a dictator, just the opposite. He belonged to, chaired, and submitted to a company of pastors. And they made decisions uh, generally jointly as a group. Calvin really was everything but a dictator. He was a very humble man. Um, he wasn't even allowed to become a citizen of Geneva until the last five years of his life. And the theory is, you probably, if you know much about Calvin, you've heard about Servetus and Calvin, and the, and the rumor is that Calvin put Servetus to death, but he did not put Servetus to death. We'll talk about that more in a minute. At Calvin's directions, he was buried in an unmarked grave because he didn't want any attention taken to himself. So we don't even know for sure today where he's buried. However, his influence was and is immense. From Calvinism flowed the scientific revolution. I wish I had time to spend on this, I don't. Capitalism and the American experiment in ordered liberty. All of that flowed out of the presuppositions about life laid down by John Calvin and the reformers. Every country or nation state that has adopted Calvinism has become dominant in world affairs. In the 17th century, it was the Netherlands who were Calvinistic through and through. They were the world's greatest trading uh, nation and one of the most powerful economic nations 
in the world at that time, in the 18th century and 19th century, it was Great Britain, which was Puritan or Calvinist foundation laid for in Calvinism and Puritanism, which produced that tremendous world uh, influence that Britain had at one time. 25% of the world's landmass was controlled by Great Britain. We had uh, 15 million people controlling almost 500 million people. Britain, 15 million, to 500 million throughout the rest of the world. Calvinism. Calvinism laid the seedbed for this, this country, the United States, and we've been the dominant world power since World War I. Calvin is best known for predestination, but although his theological system confessed predestination, as did all the reformers, with no exception, the truths around which his theology revolved were not predestination. They were the Holy Spirit and the incarnation. I'm going to put a quote up here by Alistair McGrath, one of my favorite Theologians, McGrath has a PhD in, in uh, biology from Oxford and a PhD in theology from Oxford. This guy's no lightweight. And he was my son-in-law's tutor when he was at Oxford. He, I, I love his writing, but this is what he says. Far from being a central premise of Calvin's theological system, predestination is thus an ancillary doctrine concerned with explaining a puzzling aspect of the consequences of the proclamation of the gospel of grace. Calvinism, that means those who followed Calvin, Calvinism places an emphasis upon this doctrine, predestination, which is largely lacking in Calvin's thought. Now, Calvin believed in predestination. He wrote a treatise on predestination, but it was never the main thing with him. It was never a main thing with any of the reformers. All the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bucer, Bullinger, all of them, to a man, believed in the doctrines of grace. They believed that we were predestined by God, not, not because God foresaw good works in us, but just because God is gracious and no other reason. And that's very offensive, and I understand why it's offensive, but nevertheless, so there you have it. So who was John Calvin, and how should we think of him? Let's look at his biography for a minute. He was born in 1509 in Lyons, France. Here's another picture of Calvin when he's older. Painting, I'm sorry. He's probably in his 50s at this point in time. You can see that his beard is gray. He died at about age 55, just short of 56, which was an old age in the 16th century. In 1509, he was born in Noyon, France, to a Roman Catholic lawyer, his father. His father steered him first to the priesthood and then redirected him into the law. In 1523, when he was 14, he enrolled in the University of Paris. Now, that sounds bizarre to us, but that was a normal age to go to college in the 16th century. Then in 1528, when he was just about 19, he enrolled at the, or, uh, in Orleans, France, to study law. Between 1530 and 32, he was converted at the University of Paris, but we don't know any, as I mentioned earlier, we know no details about his conversion. In 1531, I want you to have this peg now in your mind. Because remember last week, we looked at Ulrich Zwingli. In 1531, Zwingli died at about age 48 or 49. So Calvin is about 20 and is being converted right as Zwingli is dying in, at the Battle of Kappel. In 1535, at only age 26, he published the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, there were four editions. The institutes have been in print continuously for 500 years. Very, very, very few books 
is that the case with? In fact, the institutes, thousands of volumes are sold every year still. Uh, and you can get it in French, you can get it in Latin, you can get it in English, you can get it in all kinds of different languages. Virtually every theologian, Protestant theologian at a major university has read the Institutes of the Christian Religion. There were four editions. The first edition that he published when he was 26 was about 80 pages. And had a, it was just had a dissertation on the Ten Commandments, on the Lord's Prayer, and on the seven Catholic sacraments. He was, like all the Reformers, was arguing for only two sacraments, not seven. But as the years went on, he had four total editions, and each edition came out and got bigger and bigger and more and more involved as he grew spiritually. He was an introvert, and his ambition was to be a retiring scholar. He did not want to be a pastor. He did not want to pastor a church. He did not want to lead a movement, but all those things he ended up doing. In 1536, when he was 25 or 26, he was on his way to Strasbourg, France, because he was fleeing Paris because he was being persecuted and his friends were being put to death for being Protestant, so he, he's fleeing to Strasbourg. And he, there's a war going on, so he has to take a detour through Geneva. He'd never been there before. He planned to spend one night there. And while he's in Geneva, this man, Farrell is his last name, I think it's William Farrell, Guillaume Farrell, was the pastor in Geneva. Now, Geneva had just turned to the Protestant faith a year prior to this. So Farrell's got this huge workload. There's four big churches in Geneva. Farrell's trying to run the, the Reformation by himself. The, the people in Geneva have, are brand new Protestants, are mostly baby Christians, and he's got an immense workload. He has read the Calvin's first edition of the Institutes, and he hears that John Calvin is in town. So he runs to the hotel where Calvin is staying with his brother and his sister-in-law, and he grabs him and says, you need to stay here and help me with the work in Geneva. Calvin says, I don't want anything to do with Geneva. I'm going to Strasbourg. But Pharaoh basically grabs him, and he calls down a curse on him. He says, if you don't stay here, God will curse you, and your life will be destroyed. Pharaoh's about 20 years older than than Calvin, and they eventually became very close friends. Well, Calvin was, like I said, he was an introvert, and he was kind of shy and retiring, and he had a really sensitive conscience. And so he said, oh my goodness, he, I mean, he believed this. So he stayed. He stayed for 18 months, and he helped Pharaoh with the Reformation in Geneva. But the people of Geneva, after 18 months, got mad at Pharaoh and Calvin, and they kicked him out. So Calvin finally made it to Strasbourg, where he wanted to go anyway, and he settled down there, was very happy in Strasbourg. He boarded with Martin and Elizabeth Bucer, who was the main Protestant pastor in Strasbourg, and he was like a father to Calvin. He was 25 years older, and uh, Martin Bucer and his wife Elizabeth had a really happy marriage. And they, had, they lived in a house they called the Inn of Righteousness, and they had lots of boarders in their home, uh, refugees from France that were fleeing persecution and all kinds of other people. So Calvin's living there with them. He's a single guy, but he's watching their marriage, and he's very impressed with what he sees. And he thinks to himself, I want a wife like Elizabeth Bucer. So at Bucer's direction, he began pastoring a church of French refugees. And because of Bucer's marriage, Calvin made it known that he was looking for a wife. He said he wanted a woman who was chaste, quote, chaste, not too fussy or fastidious, economical, patient, and if it's not asking too much, will be a little bit interested in my health. <laughs> that was what he was looking for. 
He, he went on to say, I don't really care if she has a wonderful figure or she's beautiful, but I want a woman of, of, of integrity, okay? Well, he was 29. Before he had a bride, he even reserved a wedding date with his friend Farrell. He said, I want you to conduct my wedding and I'm going to set the date at this time. And in the meantime, I'll find somebody to marry. <laughs> okay. So he interviewed several women. First, friends brought him a wealthy German widow. But she didn't speak French and wasn't willing to learn French. So Calvin, was, who spoke French and didn't speak German, said, nope, this isn't going to work. So I thought he was kind of embarrassed about her wealth. Okay? Next, friends brought him a devout Protestant French woman. The problem was, though, she was 15 years older than Calvin. She was 45 and he was 29. Calvin was ready to give up when a woman in his congregation came to mind, a woman named Idolette de Bure. Here's a painting of her. Her Anabaptist husband, Jean, or John, had come to Strasbourg to argue with Calvin about theology and the Reformation. But in, in the consequences of their visits, uh, de Bure became convinced that Calvin was right, and he became uh, one of Calvin's disciples. So he and his wife and their two children moved to Strasbourg. But in the meantime, the plague came and John died. And so Idolette's now a widow with two sons, and she's really concerned to have a father for her two boys. Um, and she is, has left her Anabaptist teachings behind. Um, and so here was a woman he already knew who was attractive and cultured. What was not to like? Idolette, as I mentioned, was seeking a father for her children. Pharaoh came and performed the ceremony Calvin, by this time, was 31, and he and Idolite fell deeply in love. Calvin described her as, quote, the faithful helper of my ministry, end of quote, and, quote, my best friend, end of quote. For the first 45 weeks of their marriage, Calvin was out of town for 32 weeks. So they didn't see each other too much the first year of their marriage. He owned a boarding house in Strasbourg, and it was left to his wife, Idola, to manage it, which she did when he was gone. In 1539, now this is about the same time, Roman Catholic Cardinal Sadoletto wrote a letter to Geneva pleading with them to come back to the Catholic Church. And so Geneva, respecting Calvin's intelligence and the fact that he's written the institutes, da 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 Send him a note saying, would you respond to the Roman Catholic Cardinal on our behalf? So Calvin, who by this time is really turned off by Geneva. He doesn't want anything to do with Geneva. His 18 months there were really stressful. He was really unhappy there. They've kicked him out. He's in Strasbourg. He's really happy in Strasbourg. So, but he agrees to write the Roman Catholic Cardinal and make a defense of the Protestant faith on behalf of Geneva, which he does. Geneva is so impressed with what he wrote that they plead with him to return to Geneva and become their pastor. Calvin says, uh-uh. He says, I don't want to go back to Geneva. I'm really happy in Strasbourg. This is where I wanted to go initially anyway. I don't want anything to do with Geneva. But his friend said to him, John, we want you to really seek God about this. Because it may really be to the advantage of the Reformation that you be in Geneva rather than in Strasbourg. Calvin said, quote, I would rather face death a hundred times than return to Geneva. That's how he felt about it. Okay. But after prayer and encouragement from his friends, he decided to visit Geneva and discuss their offer. While he got, gets to Geneva, they wine and dine him. They give him a carriage. 
horses. They take him to this house on the lake. This house is going to be yours if you come to Geneva. They give him a bunch of really fancy new clothing, robes. They basically beg him to come back to Geneva. He still doesn't want to go to Geneva, but he finally relents and says, okay, God is in this. I'm going to go whether I want to go or not. So he writes to his wife, Idolette, in Strasbourg and says, gather up the kids and come with me to, and we're going to live in Geneva. There's a wall in Geneva today. There's a picture of it, uh, it with this engraving in it of Knox on the far left, who was a disciple of Calvin's. We'll talk about him more next week. Calvin, second to the left. Third to the left is Farrell, the man that brought him to Geneva and the man that married him. And on the far right is Beza, the man that succeeded Calvin in the pulpit, who, after Calvin died, many people say Beza was a better preacher than Calvin. Calvin was a good preacher. Beza was an even better preacher. Okay. So, <clears throat> meanwhile, Idolette, his wife, delivered a son. They arrive in Geneva. She delivers a son who died after only two weeks. I'm going to take you through a kind of a sad story here. But this was 16th century life. Three years later, she delivered a daughter who died at childbirth. In 1542, Calvin wrote a treatise on free will. I'm mentioning that because this was a really important subject in the 16th century, and it is today. And next week, I'm going to preach on this subject. I just want you to know that Luther wasn't the only one that wrote a treatise on free will. Calvin wrote a treatise on free will. Jonathan Edwards wrote a treatise on free will. We'll talk about that more next week. 1549, uh, when Idolet, his wife, was 39 years of age, a third child was born, another son who died during a premature delivery. Three children. So her two sons that she had by her previous marriage are still alive. At age 40, after only nine years of marriage, Idolet died of tuberculosis, TB. Calvin was devastated. He never got over it. He never remarried. After her death, Calvin raised her two boys to maturity, and he wrote his friend Verrett. I'm going to put it up on the board here. He said, if I did not have strong self-control, you know I would not have been able to stand it this long. My grief is very heavy. I have that underlined. My best wife's companion has been taken from me. Whenever I faced difficulties, she was always willing to share with me. Not only banishment and poverty, but even death itself. I do what I can to keep from being overwhelmed with grief. So this is one of the few personal insights we have into John Calvin. So this is, this is what year did I say? This is 15, 15, uh, did I give a date? 1549, Calvin's gonna die in 1565. So if he lives another 15 years, a single man. He raises her two sons very faithfully. We don't, I, we don't, I don't have any idea what happened to them, but I'm sure somebody does. This same year, 20 years after, was 20 years after the Marburg Colloquy. Now, last week we talked about the Marburg Colloquy, which was a meeting between Zwingli and Luther. And remember I said that Luther was pretty volatile. How many of you are here last week? I said Luther was pretty volatile. They, were, they had 15 things that they were trying to agree on. They agreed on the first 14, then they came to the Lord's Supper. And Luther took his knife out and stabbed it into the table and said, Hulk est corpus, corpus hoc est meum, whatever it is in Latin, this is my body. I'm not compromising on the fact that the bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ. Zwingli says, Martin, I can compromise on this. 
how Christ is president of the Lord's Supper, I can compromise. And Luther says to him, any pastor that can compromise on something this important should not be a pastor of the church. You're disqualified. Okay, and so that split the Reformation down the middle. Well, skip forward 20 years, Zwingli's dead, Luther's an old, old man, Calvin and Zwingli's successor, uh, Bullinger, meet in Geneva and hammer out an agreement on how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. 1550, 10 years after Calvin's arrival in Geneva, the population has doubled. But now you can imagine how this has affected the citizens of Geneva. Some are happy about it, some aren't so happy. But it's doubled by the addition of thousands of French Protestant refugees who are fleeing persecution by the King of France. Also, many students are coming to sit under Calvin's teaching. Edward VI was the boy king of England. We'll come back to this next, next week. That's a very important uh, chronological marker. King Henry VIII is dead. His son has succeeded him, Edward VI. And Edward VI is a very strong Protestant and very pro the Reformation. Geneva was the spiritual center of the Protestant Reformation by this point in time. So people from all over Europe now are coming to Geneva to learn about the Reformation. The city is swelling with refugees and with students and all the buildings are packed with, the apartment buildings are full to maximum and there's no place for people to live. Three years later, 1553, Geneva burns Servetus at the stake. And we need to mention this really quickly. Here's a picture of Servetus. I was in the wall, the uh, Target in, on North, in North Spokane a couple years ago. Actually, it's been 25 years ago. And I'm in, this, in the, in the uh, checkout line, and there's two girls in front of me, young teenagers. They have long skirts down to the floor, and they have their hair in buns and doilies on their head. So I assumed they were Amish. So I said to them, are you Amish? And they said, no, we're followers of Michael Servetus. And I said, huh, I know all about Servetus. And they looked at me like I was from Mars. You know who Michael Servetus was? Yeah, I said I knew who he was. Well, Servetus was burned at the stake in Geneva when Calvin was a pastor there. Why was Servetus burned at the stake? He was a Unitarian. He rejected the doctrine that Christ is God. Christ was just a man. And Calvin and Servetus knew each other going way back to the University of Paris when Calvin was a young man, and they had debated this personally with each other. Well, Servetus was in a Roman Catholic town, and they were set up to burn him, and he escaped. In those days, a heretic like this, especially if he goes around teaching it and proclaiming it, the way they handled it is they, burnt the, they put the person to death. They either beheaded them or burned him at the stake. So he escapes, and he comes to Geneva. And nobody knows why he came to Geneva, because he knew Geneva would be as intolerant of this as the Roman Catholic towns had been. And he comes, and they, of course they throw him in prison, the, the government does, Calvin comes to him in prison and pleads with him to change his mind. He was obstinate and refuses, so the city government, like the, like the mayoral council, decides to burn Servetus. Now, Calvin didn't have anything to do with this decision. Calvin went to the city council and pleaded with him to, to behead Servetus rather than burn him, which was a much more merciful way to die than burning at the stake. But the city council said no, and he was burned at the stake. Now, I'm mentioning that story because if you've ever read anything about Calvin, the first thing that comes up was Calvin burnt Servetus at the stake. He was a horrible, intolerant man. But that's the true story. In 1559, Geneva finally makes Calvin a citizen. 
he only has five more years to live. So, so much for the idea that Calvin ran Geneva. He didn't run Geneva. He wasn't even a citizen, but he ran Geneva with his spiritual influence in the sense that people looked up to him and honored him and respected him and listened to his teaching. In 1564, Calvin died of tuberculosis. And you have to wonder where he got that, probably from his wife, Idolette, as he cared for her as she was dying. At his insistence, as I mentioned earlier, he was buried in an unmarked grave. He didn't want anybody making a fuss over him. In fact, there were four churches in Geneva. They called them temples back in those days, the Protestants did. And there were a company of pastors that preached. Calvin was one of the preachers. They rotated from church to church so that no people wouldn't get, they would identify with Christ rather than a particular preacher. So that, that shows you Calvin's humility, you know. He, was, he wanted the people to look beyond him to Christ. He didn't want people fixated on him. And the other pastors didn't either, so they rotated continually. And when he died, he insisted that he was buried in an unmarked grave. His disciple, Theodore Beza, replaced him in the pulpit. And as I mentioned earlier, many consider him an even better preacher than Calvin was. The Reformation in Geneva continued in its initial vitality for another 60 to 70 years after Calvin died, which is remarkable. That very rarely is the case. So let's, let's close by looking at six of Calvin's spiritual legacies. And the first one is God-centeredness. When people say Calvinism, the first thing everybody thinks about is predestination, because today that's such an odious doctrine to us. Well, it's always been an odious doctrine to people, but the Bible very clearly teaches predestination. The only thing that divides Protestants over predestination is whether God predestines us because he foresees good in us. In other words, God looks down through the corridors of history and looks at Bill Farley and says, oh, I can see that he's going to believe in the gospel. So he's going to make a decision to believe, so I'll predestine him. But that's, or that's called that's called conditional predestination. It's conditioned upon my choice. The other is unconditional predestination, which the Bible very clearly teaches. The Bible does not teach unconditional. The Bible does not teach conditional predestination. It teaches unconditional, where God just looks down through the corners of history and says, I will choose, despite the fact that they're under my wrath, that they're my enemy, that they're completely offensive to me, that they're an abomination in my sight, but because God is love, I'm going to love that person despite their unworthiness and select them and choose them. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Well, that's very offensive to us because we are proud and arrogant and we think that it should be up to us, but it's not really up to us. It's up to God. So when people think of Calvinism, that's what they think about, but that's really unfair because Calvinism is about a God-centered view of life, a God-centered view of life. In the non-Calvinist system, God is man-centered. In the Calvinist view of life, man is God-centered. Let me say that again. It's very, very important. That's the difference. In Arminianism, which is the non-Calvinist view, God is man-centered. He's centered on us. Now, God does love us with an everlasting love. But in Calvinism, man is God-centered. Okay? The idea is it's not all about us. It's not all about people. It's about the glory of God. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher in London in the 20th century, Calvinism begins not with man and his happiness, but with God and his glory. 
Here's the difference. The great central and all-important truth is the sovereignty of God and God's glory. We must start here and everything else issues from this premise. I hope you get that. That is really the big difference. If somebody says you are Calvinist, you can say yes. You probably should say to them first, what is Calvinism? Because they're going to give you some crazy definition to which you can say, no, that's not me. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But if they say, give you some kind of reasonable answer, then you can say yes. Well, that would be a reasonable answer. Professor Haken at Southern Seminary teaches historical theology, says, quote, the foundation of Calvin's theology rests securely on two pillars, the utter sovereignty of God over every sphere of creation and the glory of God as the end of all of his activity and work in space and time. B.B. Warfield taught at Princeton, end of the 19th century, writes, quote, Calvinism asks with Lutheranism, indeed, that most poignant of questions, what shall I do to be saved? And they both answer, and Calvin answers it as Lutheranism answers it, faith and repentance. But the great question which presses upon the Calvinist is, how shall God be glorified? There's the difference. The Calvinist is focused on God and God's glory. The non-Calvinist is focused, now this is an oversimplification. The non-Calvinist is focused on man and his happiness. And there is, that's a colossal divide. That's like the Grand Canyon, really, in, in, in the ultimate outworkings of the two theological systems. Number two, so the first thing that Calvin brings us is God-centeredness. The second thing we get from Calvin is the importance of preaching. This is St. Pierre's, or St. Peter's, in Geneva where Calvin preached. And it's pretty much the same today as it was 500 years ago, from the outside at least. There was little preaching done before the Reformation, as you, I've mentioned in previous lectures. Just a little bit here and there, and if there was any preaching, it wasn't too connected with the Bible. But with the Reformation came expository preaching, which means we preach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, or, or chapter by chapter, or paragraph by paragraph, because we want the people to learn Scripture, to learn the Bible. There were several preaching lectures each week in each of the four temples in Geneva. So you had your Sunday morning service, you had a Sunday evening service so there was a, where there was preaching. You had a Wednesday service, you had a Friday service. There was preaching, preaching, preaching. And this was completely new to the people that had been raised Catholic and now have converted to the Protestant Reformation. Calvin preached without notes. He would just open the Bible, read a verse, and comment on it. He did that probably because he didn't have time to do notes. I would guess if he was preaching four or five times a week and writing commentaries on the Bible and answering volumes of letters to people from all over Europe, there just was no time for taking notes. But there were people doing shorthand in the audience, writing down what he was saying shorthand, and we have his preaching written out today because of those shorthand notes. Calvin and the pastors rotated from church to church, as I mentioned so that the people would identify with Christ and not with them. So the importance of preaching was the second emphasis we get from Calvin. The third thing we get is dependence upon the Holy Spirit from Calvin. Now people, if I asked you who you think of 
when you think of the Holy Spirit, the last person you're going to mention is John Calvin, probably, unless you're some kind of theological scholar, which I don't think any of us are in that sense. But Calvin, Calvin, quote, said this, the principal work of the Spirit is faith, and the principal work of faith is prayer. Calvin was really big on the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, the two big themes in his all of his work were the Incarnation and the Holy Spirit. Graham Cole, who wrote a book on the Holy Spirit, a contemporary theologian, writes this, quote, Calvin, in particular, contributed the lasting fruitful notion of an inner witness of the Spirit in the believer to the objective Word of God. Calvin is rightly described by J.I. Packer as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Just as Athanasius a fourth-century theologian, is the theologian of the Incarnation, and Luther is the theologian of justification. Now, when we think of Luther, we think of justification. When we think of, if you know anything about church history, you think of Athanasius, you think of the Incarnation. But when we think of Calvin, the last thing we think about is the Holy Spirit, isn't it? But Packer's saying, that's what Calvin should be known for. That was his major emphasis, the Holy Spirit. If you had said to John Calvin... How can I know that the Bible is the word of God? Calvin would not try to prove it to you. He would say, read the Bible. And the Bible will testify to itself that it's God's word. If you've been predestined from before the foundation of the world and God is calling you and you open the Bible and read it, you will say, this is the word of God. Because the Bible testifies to itself. How many times does the Bible say, thus saith the Lord? The Lord says. The word of the Lord is, for example. The Bible testifies to its own authority. And Calvin says the work of the Holy Spirit is to impress that on your conscience. So if God is at work in your life and you read the Bible, you will say, ah, this is God. This is God's word. This is authoritative. So the fourth thing we get from Calvin is an emphasis on culture, which we don't get from Lutheranism at all. Remember I said last week there's two main streams in the Reformation. There's Lutheranism in northern Germany. And there's Calvinism in, in uh, Swinglianism morphing into Calvinism in Switzerland. So here's our map of Switzerland that we looked at last week. At the top we have Germany, and I had a, have a really good map here somewhere. Where is it? Here it is. This is better. This is, uh, you'll see at the top, the pink areas are where, where Lutheranism had a big influence, and down at the bottom center, you see Geneva, and you see the arrows going out from Geneva. All those little dots in France are churches that were planted by Calvin and his successors in France. Then Calvinism went from Geneva to the Netherlands. You see the Netherlands, it became the dominant country in the 16th century and 17th century. Then to England and Scotland, and England becomes dominant for 200 years. And Calvinism spreads from England and Scotland to the United States with the Puritans in New England and the Anglicans in Virginia. Uh, so Calvinism is a different animal. Kind of lost my, we're talking about culture. So Calvinism produced an emphasis on education, the arts, music, <clears throat> high culture, as we mentioned earlier, science, capitalism, and political freedom, all, all flow out of Calvinism, not out of Lutheranism. Again, Alistair McGrath, who I quoted earlier said, this is a really great quote. It has been at two points only that Christianity has been able to decisively transform human culture and civilization. 
First, during the Middle Ages, through the scholastic synthesis of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas tried to, tried to synthesize Greek philosophy and the Bible. He tried, it didn't work, but it had a big influence on culture, okay? But the second was in the early modern period through Calvinism. Only two times that Christianity has been able to decisively transform culture and civilization. Michael Horton writes, professor at Westminster West, wherever reformed convictions gained a foothold, there was a revival of classical learning and interest in the arts and sciences. Not only among the highly educated, but even among the daily laborer, who also had more access to basic, edu basic education. Listen, brothers and sisters, go to New England and look at all the colleges in New England. Who founded New England? Puritans, Calvinist Puritans. They came to New England, the first thing they did was establish Harvard College, why? They wanted all their people to read. The, the, letter, the, the level of literacy in New England in the 17th century was the highest in the world. Like 80% of the people could read and write in the 17th century in New England. Why? Because they were Calvinists. And they loved God's word. And if you couldn't read, you couldn't read God's word. So reading and education became crucial to the Calvinist uh, enterprise. And fifthly, not only an emphasis upon culture, but on grace. Predestination means that grace is all in all. Say that with me. Grace is all in all. If God has predestined Bill Farley, not because he foresaw anything good in me, but just because God is love, then it's all of grace, isn't it? Can I look down on a non-Christian? Listen, I got some guys I golf with that are pretty, pretty rude guys. Four-letter words, I don't care. I don't mean dick. I mean, some of the guys are Christians too. But I'm happy to be there with them. And you can, you can be in the, amongst them the crudest, grossest, foulest unbelievers and love them because you know the only thing that separates you from them is a gift which you didn't earn. You had nothing to do with receiving that gift. God just graciously backed up his dump truck of grace on you and dumped it on you for his own glory, no other reason. And so there's no looking down on anybody else. There's no, uh, we do that anyway, don't we? But I mean, we shouldn't be looking down on anybody else. And when we find it ourselves doing that, we, we repent of it very quickly because we realize that all is of grace. Frank James, again, historical theologian, writes, for Calvinists, the wicked receive precisely what they deserve, but the elect receives what they do not deserve, grace. This recognition of the immense goodness of God stirs the pious soul to true humility. Without a proper understanding of predestination, Calvin cautioned, humility is torn up by the roots. Let me read that again. Without a proper understanding of predestination, humility is torn up by the roots. And lastly, missions. So the fifth emphasis is grace. Grace producing humility in the believer. Calvin's venerable company of pastors sent an army of missionaries to Italy, on the map behind me, Germany, the Lowlands, and England, but especially France. The French Calvinists were called Huguenots. The missionaries traveled by night over roads, obscure roads, hidden attics by day, and established underground churches throughout 
Catholic friends. Calvin even sent a missionary group to Brazil in the 16th century. Nobody's sending missionaries to the New World except Calvinists at this point in time. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, was a thoroughgoing Calvinist. All the early missionaries, a couple from New England, Judy, help me, went to, they went to Thailand. Judson. Judson, Calvinists. All the early American missionaries, Calvinists, because Calvinists are missionary-minded, even though they, yes, we believe in predestination, but we believe God predestines people as they respond to the word of God. And we also believe, and here's a mystery, that when we pray for the unconverted, God will convert them. God will somehow, even though it's all been decided in advance, it hasn't been decided in advance, there's this great mystery. There's predestination, which God understands, and then there's our prayer, which God hears and responds to. Both those things are always true. How that works, we don't know. Timothy George, a Catholic professor at Princeton, writes this, quote, Calvin's theology was meant for trekkers. Calvin's theology was meant for trekkers, not for settlers. As historian Heiko Obermann put it, in the 16th century, Calvinist trekkers fanned out across Europe, initiating political change as well as church reform from Holland to Hungary, from the Palatinate to Poland, from Lithuania to Scotland, England, and eventually to New England. In its drive and passion, George continues, in its worldview-transforming vision, Calvinism was an international fraternity comparable only, he's writing as a Catholic, to the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, in the era of the Reformation. It's perhaps ironic that Calvin and Ignatius Loyola, who started the Jesuits, both studied at the same time in the same school at the University of Paris. Let me read a, a concluding quote by our John Newton, who wrote Amazing the hymn Amazing Grace, who was very instrumental in ending the slave trade in England in, at the beginning of the 19th century, Newton wrote, quote, once asked if he was a Calvinist, Newton plunked a, plump, a lump of sugar into his tea, stirred the hot liquid and said, I am more of a Calvinist than anything else, but I use my Calvinism in my writing and preaching as I use this sugar. I do not give Calvinism alone and whole, but mixed and diluted, diluted, not weakened, in a holistic and permeating way. I think these doctrines, Calvinist doctrines, should be in a sermon like sugar in a dish of tea, which sweetens every drop, but is nowhere to be found in a lump. They should be tasted everywhere, though prominent nowhere. Well, this is a Calvinist church. Do we talk about Calvinism all the time? No, we don't, do we? We don't need to. But we, we take, we are a church who's focused on the glory of God, a God-centered church who love the doctrines of grace, and we just teach what's in the Bible, which is fundamentally what Calvin taught, and we're thankful. We don't need to bring up Calvin's name. Calvin would be very happy if we don't bring up his name. He doesn't want to be mentioned. He doesn't want to be noticed. He, he doesn't want attention to be brought to him. We want all the attention to be put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Father, this morning we thank you for this man, John Calvin. And God, we thank you for the Reformation. We thank you for the doctrines that you restored through the Reformation. 
We thank you for your word, which so richly dwelled in Calvin and Bullinger and Bucer and Beza and all these great men. We thank you for their testimony. We thank you for their courage. We thank you uh, for raising them up as models for us. We th thank you for all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If any of you have questions, feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards. Or